Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Audrey Hepburn and Mr. Gregory Peck. Without writers, there would be no words. Without words, there would be no movies. And without movies, there would not have been 60 glorious years of Academy history. You're absolutely right, Your Royal Highness. And I'd like to express for all actors the admiration we feel for the men and women who write the stories we tell on the screen, the roles we play, and the words we speak. The nominees for Best Screenplay written directly for the screen are... Louis Mal for Au Revoir Les Enfants, Goodbye Children. James L. Brooks for Broadcast News. John Borman for Hope and Glory. Patrick Shanley for Moonstruck. And Woody Allen for Radio Day. And the winner is... Hello and welcome back to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the best, most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I'm Lee. And I'm Spro. And today, ugh, we're talking about reading. <laughs> How in the fuck do we make this entertaining? Who likes to read, huh? Nobody. Am I right? No. <laughs> we're talking about screenplays. One of my two favorite things in this world. Oh, yeah? What's the other thing? Women. <laughs> God damn, can't get enough of them. Women in writing, man. And the reason why we're talking about screenplays is because despite the fact that the Oscars nominate 10 screenplays a year, awarding two of them, one for Best Original and one for Best Adapted, and despite the fact you really don't have a movie or a film without screenplays, it is very rare for Academy voters and moviegoers in general to read a screenplay. I guess it's the same as someone going, I love hotels, but I've never seen one of their blueprints. And that may be a fair argument. But if we're going to take an episode of Saltota to talk mm. screenplays, as with everything Spro and Lee, we're going to make this the most educational episode on the art of screenwriting as possible. Oh, that sounds good. And for all you nascent authors dreaming of finally finishing that screenplay, we hope you're listening rather closely. Near the end of this episode, we're going to bring on a special guest, the one who got us into this mess by suggesting a script from 1987, a script that may have been ahead of its time and perhaps hit a little too close to home with the Hollywood elite. The script in question has since become a baseline for young writers seeking to tackle the human propensity towards overindulgence and greed. But we'll get to that soon enough. Spro, you're a writer. You're in charge. So what do you have in mind for the bulk of today's episode? Okay, so today, dear listener, in 30 minutes or less, I'm going to teach you everything you need to know to write the first draft of your screenplay. 30 minutes, really, it's all it takes to get started. And Lee and I, we read some screenplays of 1987, which we will refer to. And I think we'll get our social media to post the links to those screenplays if our audience wants to nerd out like us. But otherwise, here we go. Are you ready? Yes. Are you talking to me or the audience? <laughs> like a Blue's Clues well, moment? <laughs> So you'll find plenty of other podcasts with screenwriter hosts who talk episode after episode about the craft of screenwriting. And while I admire some of them, most of all writing shows ends up sounding like therapy 
for the writers. Even some writing classes I've taken from professional writers, you suddenly feel like you paid to be the person's kind ear. And I get it. Writing is a lonely, lonely, miserable experience, either experienced in a room at home or alone in a crowded coffee shop or bar. So when you have the opportunity to talk to someone, you just gush. But man, Lee, you know that metaphor about the crabs in the pot? Um, yeah, I think so. Where the water's boiling and all the crabs on top try and crawl out of the pot, but the crabs on the bottom, who also want to escape, start grabbing at the escaping crabs on the top and pulling them back in, thus dooming them all to death. Yeah, that's screenwriters. Every one of us is having a difficult time getting something made, so a lot of screenwriters sit and bitch with each other and everyone brings each other down. So, first lesson in writing your script. You ready for it? Hit me. Fuck other screenwriters. Don't listen to them. Just me, because I'm here to lift you up, not tell you how impossible it is to get anything made. But I should ask, you write, Lee. And despite so many times of me asking, want to write something together? You demure. You love movies. Screenwriting never tempted you? I'm not saying you never asked me that. I'm just saying I don't mm. remember you asking me that. I would love to write something with you. And, and sure, yeah, screenwriting has absolutely tempted me, but I always end up jumping ship on my own story. I think I'm too hard on myself. I can almost guarantee you that I had a conversation with you as like, wouldn't you love to write with me a high school version of The Great Gatsby? I have no memory of that, but hold on, I have a question. If it's a high school version of Great Gatsby, did they meet when they were in like first grade? <laughs> did Daisy or and, like and Jay? Sixth grade, maybe. Oh, okay, all right. Or fifth grade, they, you know, you skip middle school together. I was thinking the- and he, got, and he got moved to a different school or something. Yeah, or he went to Juvie, maybe, reinvented himself <laughs> somewhere in there. Nick Carraway is like the head of the school newspaper. And Jay Gatsby now throws house parties at a house, probably not even his parents' house. He just like broke into a house or his a house sitter and pretends like that's his house trying to get Ooh. Daisy to come to these parties. Nice. What would you call come it? back home? Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. like you think like Taming of the Shrew was 10 Things I Hate About You. You know, you got to have something cool like that. So you're thinking of it in the vein, I guess you'd have to, right? If you're making it about kids, you're thinking of it in the vein of like 10 Things I Hate About You and Clueless and all those. Yeah. Oh, maybe we can get Amy Harkerling. <laughs> Let's get back to the episode. As a screenwriter, I have heard, you know what would be a good idea for a movie out of almost everybody's mouth who knows I'm a screenwriter? And I'll listen to the idea, knowing I'm swamped with my own and encourage the sayer to write the script to which the response is usually, I'm not a writer. Listen, if you write, you're a writer. If you paint, you're a painter. If you take off your clothes for an audience, you're a stripper. And if you take off your clothes and write, you're Diablo Cody, who is celebrated as a screenwriter, which I think is fantastic. Uh, yeah, young adult is terrific. That's my favorite thing she ever did. Juno was a hell of a first offering. Yeah, I suppose. But wait a second, before you really get going, I'm worried. I'm worried that people might listen and be like, who the fuck's bro to teach me anything? <laughs> But it just so happens we have a Sundance winning producer friend to vouch for old Edgar Allan Spro. So today, in lieu of an Oscar fun fact, here's a fun fact about Spro brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro and Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a salad bean, and when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. 
What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, reishi shroom and L-theanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but Odd Dog. This just might be the easiest recommendation that I've ever written since I have become a huge fan of Spro as both a person and as a creative writing force of nature. I came to know Spro years ago when an actor I was working with told me that I had to read a script written by his friend. I reluctantly agreed with no real expectations other than perhaps giving some friendly advice to the recent college grad after reading his script. I immediately set up a meeting with Spro to talk over his script since I wanted it to become my directorial debut. Prior to this experience, I fancied myself a screenwriter. My first screenplay had won several writing awards and had been optioned by a major studio only to die in development hell. My second script had been optioned by an independent producer and we parted ways after creative differences. Due to this, I thought I was an up-and-coming hotshot screenwriter until I met Spro. That's when I realized what an actual screenwriter was. I began calling him my goodwill hunting since once I met him, I knew instantly that he was far superior to me as a writer. It seemed to come so easy and natural to him. I'm not putting myself down. I have evolved into a successful creative producer and director. I'm just not a pure screenwriter. I'm not Spro. Even today, I ask Spro to read any project that I am considering producing or directing to get his opinion, which, to his unselfish nature, returns in the form of a small novella filled with detailed and well-thought-out notes while asking for nothing in return for his time, effort, and talent. Since I first met Spro, he's gone on to have several scripts optioned and developed, including the initial script that I had hoped to direct. That one was up and running in Puerto Rico and was only halted due to the hurricane disaster. At least five or six other scripts since then have been optioned with at least two heading into production this year. I also brought Spro on to help me craft the story on my current project. I use his initial outline and notes prior to every interview to make sure I have all the proper story beats. I am also going to produce and direct another one of Spro's scripts after I complete my current projects, now that I am far enough into my own career to pull it off. Basically, you can ignore this entire spiel and just read a few pages of any one of Spro's scripts, and I think you'll understand where I'm coming from. Not only does Spro continue to hone his skills and craft in, in terms of story and structure and pacing, but he is incredibly imaginative and a true wizard with dialogue. I realize I'm heaping some high praise, so please reach out if you have any questions. I'm available anytime to discuss Spro as a person or as a storyteller. All my best, Bob in the biz. Wow, that was a glowing appraisal. Does he want to come talk movies and Oscars with us? And is he British? <laughs>
Well, we have to keep some some mystique, some secrecy. We hope to have Bobby on the show one time in the future. So as we get into this today, Lee, anytime you want to cut in, ask a question, challenge me, go right ahead. Otherwise, we're just going to get rolling. Copy that. Okay. Screenwriting 101. Rule number one, don't listen to other screenwriters who want to tell you something about screenwriting. Screenwriters are either egotistical nut jobs who think the craft is birthed and breathes with them, or they're miserable, confidence-lacking runts who just want company at the bottom. I'm more of the latter. The greatest thing about the craft of screenwriting is that the tools are written out for you. You don't have to talk to a screenwriter because their scripts are here in the world, completely accessible. You could find almost any screenplay anywhere on the internet just by typing out the movie title, screenplay, and then PDF. And if you want to see how your favorite movie was designed, just type in something like Titanic screenplay.pdf and it will take you right to it. Have you ever Googled a screenplay like that? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Not prior to this episode anyway. There's a lot of screenplays for free out there. Some are behind a paid wall, but you can find almost anything you need. I will say some of my favorite movies are now begging to be rewatched with the script open in front of me. Right. That brings me to the next question I wrote down. Bro, why would I want to read the screenplay when I can just watch the movie? Well, one, reading scripts also lets you see a different version of the story, mayhaps, than the one you see on screen. And if you don't believe me, give Ferris Bueller's Day Off a read and check out the political monologues that didn't make it. But two, if you're thinking about writing a script, homework assignment number one, Google and bring up your favorite movie script and watch the movie with the script open in front of you so that you can see how things are described on the page versus how they look on the screen. This is the free way of research. The pricey way of research, which you can maybe get free from your local library, and I do hope you are supporting your local libraries because they are a fantastic research, not only for books, but for DVDs and everything of the like. I'm going to recommend you three books. The first book is The Hollywood Standard 3. When reading this book, take notes. This is like the Bible of screenplay formatting, and I find myself still to this day going back to it on the shelf should I brain fart on how I want to, say, present a phone call between three people on the page. The Hollywood Standard 3. Screenplays have a very specific kind of formatting, and the people that read screenplays can tell right away whether or not your screenplay is in the proper format. The second book is The Screenwriting Workbook by Sid Field. Field is a master screenwriting instructor and his book will help you craft a draft. He has a book called Four Screenplays where he breaks down movies like Thelma and Louise, which is a fun read, but not something you need for your first draft. But the screenwriting workbook will take you step by step through crafting your first screenplay. So that will definitely help you once you're done listening to this episode of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. Finally, Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. This is an eye roll suggestion for people in the biz. To me, it's the nickelback of books. It became so popular that it then became popular for people to hate it. Here's the thing about screenwriting. Lesson number two, it's right by numbers. It's structured, so heavily structured. Like, I don't want to point to the fact that like, oh, it's so structured and so right by numbers that there's only one structure. There are over a dozen different structures that people teach and talk about. The top two screenwriting colleges in the world, UCLA, my alma mater, and USC have two different theories. UCLA rocks the three-act structure and USC, the eight-sequence structure. The eight-sequence structure is really just the three-act structure boiled down to eight different sequences. Marvel does a question and answer for quadrant structure, meaning they have the overall problem 
problem to solve in the film, but then the first quarter of the movie is solving one problem, the second quarter of the movie is solving a second problem, third quarter is solving a third problem, and the fourth solving the fourth problem, which ends up solving the overall problem. So they sit down to discuss a movie with their writer group and goes, okay, this is how we're breaking down the movie. And then from there, all their movies are essentially the same structure, whether or not you can see it or not in the audience. And it's one of those things where you don't want to dive too deep because learning structure or having structure pointed out to you will sometimes ruin things for you. It's like a peek behind the curtain. Once you realize that Dr. House was going to fail two times before coming up with the answer on his third theory, House got monotonous. When you learn the structure, which Save the Cat will teach you, it is very easy to formulate a film. And great films and filmmakers are still doing Save the Cat and getting high praise for it. 1917 is a prime example. First lesson in Save the Cat, have your first image of the film and the last image of the film mirror each other. 1917 starts with the soldier leaning against the tree and ends with the soldier leaning against a tree. Right from the book everyone loves to hate and yet nominated for best original screenwriting. Original and yet formulaic. Two things I want to say before your eyeballs glaze over. One, you can write a first draft of a screenplay. Yes, you, dear listener, and you, Lee, and everybody listening to this has the ability to write a Hollywood competent first draft of a screenplay. And you want to know how I know this? Because first drafts are supposed to suck. They all do. They're all lousy. Your first draft and Aaron Kruger's first draft, they suck. Get over it. And your fucking self. It's supposed to be fucking shit. It's supposed to be so horrible, you don't want people to read it. But you know what? It's a first draft of a fucking screenplay and you fucking wrote it. You're a goddamn screenwriter. This episode isn't going to tell you how to rewrite a second draft. That's the hard part of screenwriting. But the shitty first draft is shite easy. And that's what this episode is about. And this isn't news. Any screenwriter worth their weight in salt knows the first draft sucks. Aaron Sorkin writes a first draft of his script and then throws it out and writes the second draft, never looking at the first draft again. In fact, I'm kind of an anomaly. I've sold two first drafts in my life and they were both relatively at the beginning of my career. One, this feels very awesome because it's very rare. It's kind of where the goodwill hunting adage comes in from producers in the game. But two, <laughs> it totally ruined me for 10 years because then I thought all my first drafts were good. And you know what? None of them are. Not even the ones that sold. I would totally like to go back and rewrite the shit out of the things that I'm watching being made. But the second thing, if you made it this far in this episode, because you're like, you know what? I want to write a screenplay and I'm here for the knowledge. You've written down the books to buy and now you need software. There's some free screenwriting software out there for formatting. The software is so easy. It just formats the script for you. So you don't have to necessarily worry so much about it. And then you just check the Hollywood standard to make sure the formatting software is doing its job. There's some free screenwriting software out there that will help you like Celtics, C-E-L-T-X, which I've seen a lot in my classes and my writers group. I've sold scripts I wrote on Scribner. That is for the people that like everything to be organized. But the staple of the industry from now and forever is Final Draft, which can be pricey. If screenwriting might be a little bit of a hobby, something you want to do for an hour a day, might not want to jump full joy into Final Draft, you could go in on it with a buddy and share the license. I think the license is shareable up to three computers. But this is a first for Saltota. We're going to do a giveaway. We have never even given away a sticker yet for anybody that has found a flaw in our game. But we are going to be able to give away Movie Magic Screenwriting Software, which is a $250 value. So all you have to do to get this free screenwriting, we're only going to give it to one person. You just have to write us your movie idea at takeontheacademy at gmail.com. Or if you don't like email and you like Instagram, 
Take on the Academy is our Instagram name. All you have to do is write us your movie idea, just a simple pitch. Don't give us all the details. Two sentences, which is a log line, if you will, just something that says like, this is what my movie is going to be about. And then how you are going to write it. Just something that tells us you have a cool idea and you are actually itching to accomplish a first draft. And we will send you the code to download the software and you'll be on your way. Movie Magic Screen Ring Software from your pal Spro and Lee, who hope we are sitting front row when you're on envelope is red. All right. How about that? So that's it to get started. What did we learn so far, Lee? Okay. Uh, number one, Hollywood standard three. Number two, Sid Field. Number three, save the cat. Google screenplay, PDF, other screenwriters ain't shit. And then finally, we're giving our money away to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For the next part, you and I, Lee, and you mostly, I'm just going to be the guiding force, are going to create a screenplay real quick for the audience just so they can see how easy it is to kind of fit everything into a structure. So first and foremost, have you ever had an idea for a screenplay that you'd be willing to share for this experiment? Yeah. I mean, I've had flashes of ideas, but nothing really close to fully formed. And really, a flash is all we need. Oh. <laughs> what if we <laughs> we do something like this? Ferris Bueller's Day Off, since you mentioned that earlier, meets one of my favorite unsung films, Judgment Night, except mm. with female protagonists. So the lead character and her buddy or buddies blow off school or work. They leave the burbs, they head into the big city, and some serious shit goes down to the point that they're running for their lives. Let's get some snappy dialogue, make it very episodic, maybe even a kill count. Thoughts on that? Sounds good. And you even got like a full form kind of idea there. So let's real quickly paint the screenplay into a breakdown that one could then, you know, theoretically make into like an outline or a first draft. So we already have our construct of types, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Judgment Night, which is great. A lot of the times in the industry, people would be like, what two movies is this like? What's the feel of this? So it's always good to come to the table with two movies in mind, which I know people are like, well, that sounds like you're being unoriginal, but like that is literally one of the questions you're going to be asked. So for those that don't know, which I feel like everybody should pretty much know Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is three main characters. And I'd say the principal and the sister are side characters. And Judgment Night, which is the Emilio Estevez, Dennis Leary vehicle, is four friends and a handful of bad guys, mainly two. So for the sake of brevity, let's go with three main characters. And you want to flip the genders. So it's like two girls and one dude. And really, let's be real with Hollywood. Let's not define the dude's sexual preference. Who cares if he's gay or straight? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, you're way out in front of me on that, but uh, okay. sure. You, you lead the way. So now what? I think unlike Judgment Night, I want it to take place during the day while the city kind of is carrying on around them. I imagine that they eventually, if not immediately, go to try and score some drugs. Maybe one of them wants some Coke or pills and the transaction goes sideways. It might be a little cliche for one of the mains to see something that they shouldn't, but that's one way to go. Maybe there's a misunderstanding and the dealer gets pushy and violent. Either way, they get the better of this guy. And one of the protagonists ends up robbing the guy of the money and the drugs because they think he's small time. This is really a lot more Judgment Night than Ferris Bueller's Day. <laughs> well, we can have him go to an art museum too. I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. 
I'm thinking it starts out tonally very fun and carefree and then goes completely sideways. Okay. The structure that we're going to talk about, it's got a couple points to it. So your first image and your last image should be something that kind of mirror each other, according to Hollywood. Inciting incident, which is like what starts your whole film off. You're going to have your first act break, which is when your characters go, okay, we're in it. Like, let's go. Until then, they're kind of like doubting the situation that they're going on. The midpoint is when everything switches. So that's probably when the transaction goes sideways. Wouldn't that be the inciting incident? Well, the inciting incident is probably them skipping school. Okay. Because that's when everything starts. And then at the beginning of the third act is when everything goes to shit. It's called like the all is lost moment in Save the Cat where like everything is going to go wrong. And you're like, man, our heroes, they're just going to die. There's no way that they're going to get out of this. And then, of course... They figure it out, climax and resolution. That's all you need. So now with like the three characters, they all have to be different. You know what's an easy trick is casting them and then just writing the actors' names that you want to play these people because then you already have them in your head and you don't have to like dive too deep into the characters for like the first draft. Then I just shot myself in the foot off rip because I'm not super great with young actors and actresses. (laughs) Can I get Zendaya? You could get Zendaya. My handlers are always irritated with me because they're like, all right, who do you see in these roles? And I go, I see Michelle Rodriguez 20 years ago. (laughs) They're like, we can't get Michelle Rodriguez 20 years ago. And I'm like, yeah, but that's who I see. You could put anybody that you want in these roles. So who would you cast? I mean, I do like the idea of Zendaya as the lead. All right, let's keep Zendaya as the lead. Hey, I'm Zendaya from Shake It Up. Disney Channel. Looking good. I like Lakeith Stanfield. Mm-hmm. I was thinking it'd be nice to get him in there somewhere. Hey, this is Lakeith Stanfield, and today I'm going undercover on the internet. I also enjoy Margot Robbie. Hi, I'm Margot Robbie. Hi. And Bill Hader. Hi, I'm Bill Hader. I'm here with these two jackasses. Are these our four heroes? I think Bill Hader is the heavy. Nice. So he's our drug dealer? Not the guy that they rob, but maybe the guy that the small-time drug dealer runs to and goes, these kids robbed me. Zendaya. Hey! Somebody vaguely Margot Robbie-ish. Hi. And Lakeith Stanfield. Hey. Are the three friends. Okay. So I'm thinking our first image and our last image should be them in class. Zendaya, Lakeith Stanfield, and Margot Robbie sitting in class. Zendaya gets a text like, drugs are here or whatever. And she's like, we got to go. And Margot Robbie, or probably Lakeith. It would be nice to see Lakeith be like, I don't want to skip. I have a test. This guy that, you know, is probably high as shit sitting in class is actually very concerned. He's actually high as shit because he's anxious about a test or a report that he has to give. He's the stoner that's really into his studies, you know? Okay. So Margot Robbie's the the junkie. Sure. And at the end of the film, one of those seats is going to be empty, right? One of them died. And it's probably Zendaya that's going to have to deal with the fact that she has fucked up or failed. What is their ultimate want? Like, No Way Home, the entire world gets fucked up because they want to get into MIT, which is my number one (laughs) 
hatred of that movie <laughs> is that it all is because they want to get into one of the most prestigious colleges in the country. So what is Zendaya, Lakeith, and Margot Robbie really wanting from the world? They just want to have a good time, man. Are they graduating? Like they want to, mm, yeah. this is like their final like hangout? It's their senior year, maybe like last couple of months. Because that's the stakes, right? If they don't do this, what happens? Shit, man. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for you. You don't have to have an answer right off the rip. Okay. Then stop grilling me. Jesus. Okay. (laughs) Zendaya gets a text. They have the drugs. And then they escape school. The whole first act could kind of be like Lakeith being like, all right, but we got to get back. Is this all during a school day? Yeah, I see it taking place over the course of one day. Nice. A clock. Very good to have. So maybe Lakeith's report is due the last period and he's working on it the entire movie like even in like the car he's got his like spiral notebook out and he's jotting down notes and everything like that so Zendaya convinces Lakeith and she doesn't really have to convince Margot Robbie if Margot Robbie is our junkie to skip school promises to have Lakeith back in time for his report and so you'll come up with the cool and interesting way that they get out of school so you kind of start the movie like a heist almost make it super fun and interesting until you get to the drug deal which is about 20 minutes in something goes wrong Zendaya for whatever reason robs the drug runner and the runner goes to Bill Hader and goes yo they just robbed me and maybe during the skirmish they dropped a school ID and so Bill Hader now knows where they're going to be and so by the time they get back to the school Bill Hader has like cut them off or whatnot and that's going to start our chase through the suburbs yeah okay okay it's not the way I envisioned it but I like it I was scared for a second that you were going to say that Bill Hader was going to meet them at the school and a bloodbath would ensue um, <laughs> that wouldn't look good our final beat of the film is Lakeith giving his report so you can't have a bloodbath in the school the school has to be untouched what's his report on see I'm constantly thinking about details that's fine his report would be something dealing with the theme right like addiction and Ooh. Margot Robbie is now dead. Yeah. See, and I was even thinking it's not Zendaya that robs the drug dealer, that it's Margot Robbie. She's the loose cannon. She's the junkie. So even better, bro. That is so good. Yeah, You're doing okay. so good at this. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Zendaya and Keith are like, what the fuck, dude? Mm-hmm. I love the casting of it because I can like see it. Can you see it? Yeah, I can see it. Maybe her and Lakeith are an item and Zendaya is like the third wheel. And Lakeith is like, we have the money. Why did you rob the guy? She's like, now we have the money and the drugs. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe we have like a flashback scene where Zendaya and Margot are talking and Zendaya hates Margot Robbie's addiction, right? Like they both got high together and they both did drugs together, but Zendaya can regulate herself. But Margot Robbie obviously has an addictive personality and is going off the deep end. And Margot says, just one last party. I just want one mm-hmm. last party and then I'll clean myself up. So this is like Zendaya being like, I don't like the idea. They maybe like pinky promise, but they cut their pinkies. And so it's like a pinky blood promise. And she's never broken a pinky promise before in her life. So Zendaya knows that she is committed to getting clean, but she just wants that one last party. And this is when the shit is spiraling out of control. Okay. So then we're working up to the midpoint when everything changes. So Bill Hader, our drug guy who can't just be a heavy, he's got to have his own reasons for doing things. What is Bill Hader doing to try and catch them? See, this is usually where I fall off. This is where 
where it's like, okay, so now I actually have to push the conflict-driven part of the story forward to some sort of a climax. I can see the climax and a little bit of the resolution, but the rising action is just all a blur to me. I don't know. <laughs> Let's say it's Zendaya's student ID that he finds. So then the only one he knows by face is Zendaya. So Zendaya becomes this vendetta. He can't let these kids from the suburbs come in and rob his people. So he's got a grudge against suburban rich kids or just anybody who's not part of his world. He has seen his neighborhood somewhere between the suburban sprawl and the inner city. And he has this just image of like, we can clean up the drugs of the city if we bring the drugs to the suburbs because they don't care that the drugs are ruining our neighborhoods. So let's make them care if the drugs are ruining their neighborhoods. So maybe this whole philosophy of his is like some kind of Thanos, Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> like if half the people are addicted, then all the people can get some rehab going. And so that was like his first goal. But we've kind of been pittering and pattering around it. Margot Robbie. Hi is dying at our all is lost moment. So we have Margot Robbie robbing the drug dealer at act two break. We have her dying at the act three break. And really, if you're following along, I don't know how good this episode is going to be. If you're following <laughs> along and being like, well, what happens during act two? Act two is the hardest act to write. So if you're like, fuck, I don't know what's going on. This is where the USC structure of breaking things down to eight sequences helps people out a little bit more because act two is now three or four sequences. It's also called fun and games. It's what you see most in movie trailers is what happens in act two because you're kind of raising the stakes and having fun with it and whatnot. Like I kind of see Bill Hader going to the school and we have Zendaya, Lakeef, and Margot Robbie, who's probably already taking drugs, being a very fun character to watch because she's like Martin Lawrence in Bad Boys 2 when he's on Molly and he's like, that's a big fucking fish. This is a nice fish, you know? Big fucking eyes, but a nice fucking fish. And Lakeith is like, fuck, I got to focus on this fucking report. Back at the school, they see Bill Hader going in. Perhaps Bill Hader and Zendaya have each other's cell phone numbers or whatnot. So Zendaya calls Bill Hader and is like, what are you doing at my fucking school? And he's like, I need my drugs and I need my money. And they look over and Margot Robbie's done like half the drugs already. <laughs> And they're like, well, we can't give you the drugs. So he's like, well, then you're fucking going to have to pay me back. Now they need to get money to pay the dealer back because Bill Hader is going to tell the principal that they skipped. And Lakeith Stanfield needs to give this fucking report. He's holding the principal over her and she's holding the cops over him. So then they find their equal footing. And he's like, well, I'm going to put a person outside the school. You're not going to get in until I get my money. And so she's like, okay, well, we have to get the money by 2 p.m. because that's when Lakeith has to give his report. Logic would denote that three high school kids would immediately go and tell their parents and be like, we fucked up. We need money. Can you help us? No, you can't tell your parents. You skip school. Margot Robbie is fucking high as a kite. Okay. <laughs> All right. So maybe so, rob their parents. Rob their parents, rob a convenient, like how much money are we looking for? It's high school students, so it doesn't have to be that much. The stakes are very high because Lakeith needs to give the report. So maybe Margot Robbie doesn't die. She just overdoses into the hospital. <laughs> Oh, no, I want somebody to die. Somebody, Bill somebody's, Hader could some, die. Somebody's got to go. Actually, I would like Bill Hader to survive. What about his drug dealer? The little guy, after he goes and tattles on them, we don't see him anymore. Because he died? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's our introduction to the Bill Hader character. He beats the shit out of him for being ineffectual. Hi. Yeah. 
Okay. So I think the one thing is, is we can't have Margot Robbie die yet. Right. If like they go to rob their parents, maybe they find jewelry or whatnot. And either Bill Hader calls or Zendaya calls Bill Hader and be like, I don't know shit about jewelry. Like what would diamond earrings get me? And Bill Hader's like, I'm not a fucking pawnbroker. I'm not taking your jewelry. Give me my cash. So then they're like, okay, so we can't take jewelry. Um, but maybe they find their dad's gun, which wasn't properly locked up. <laughs> So then they go, well, we have a gun, like, let's rob a convenience store. They go rob a convenience store, not enough money there. But that now has tipped off the cops. And that could be around our midpoint. Rob one convenience store, right next door is like a hair salon. They try to rob that, still not enough money. But now the cops have arrived and they're running from the cops too. So this is our midpoint. Now we just got to get from the midpoint to Margot Robbie's death. So I'm thinking they throw themselves at the mercy of Bill Hader because they're out of time. And then maybe as their backup, they're like, let's bring the gun. Maybe somebody suggests that and then they're like, no, that's a great way to get killed. But Margot Robbie sneaks it and she's got it like in her jeans behind her shirt or something like that. Trying to think like how she can facilitate her own death and then Zendaya and Lakeith leave her body with Bill Hader to go back to the school. So how do they win if Margot Robbie dies? Lakeith gets to give his report. Hey, this is Lakeith Stanfield and today I'm going undercover. And his heart's not in it. And he gets a very good grade, but the teacher's like, you, you seem a little stiff. That would be my only criticism. They don't win? Everybody loses in this? Yeah, fuck yeah. Okay. I don't know how to climax a loss. <laughs> <laughs> the climax would be that Margot Robbie Hi. dies. I don't know how to get from the climax to the resolution, though, where Lakeith gets back to give his report. They don't have enough time. Lakeith is like, I have to get back to the school. And so she's like, then we have to beg for mercy. And they go to Bill Hader. Margot Robbie probably feels like absolute shit. This was all because she wanted one last party. And maybe Bill Hader takes the gun, threatens Zendaya, and Margot Robbie has that hero moment. Because there's going to be a whole lot of audience members looking at Margot Robbie and being like, this fucking junkie. So she needs that one moment. Zendaya is going to have a great life. She's got a good head on her shoulders. Lakeith is probably going to have a great life because he's working really hard. And Margot Robbie, whose father has a unregistered, unlocked away firearm and, you know, wrong side of the tracks and just became what society is going to make her. She gives her life for them. Bill Hader kills Margot Robbie, maybe the first person that he has killed, like he beats up people, but he's like extremely agitated with himself. We go back to our judgment night with one kind of reference of like, oh boys, rule number two, no witnesses. No witnesses. <laughs> Bill Hader and his beat up drug runner are now chasing Zendaya and Lakeith Stanfield through the suburbs. The Ferris Bueller that we're coming back to, all the running through the backyards and over trampolines and through dog houses and shit like that. Bill Hader gets arrested, not for the murder. He's down and out and Zendaya and Lakeith get back to the school where Zendaya is fucking rife with tears and Stanfield is like going through his report. And you know that those two are going to be okay. And Margot Robbie, in the end, off drugs because she's dead. The way I see it is that at the end, Zendaya and Lakeith are not going to be okay. They are forever going to be haunted by this sobering day. Nice. That is a fleshed out script. As long as you hit the 90 page mark, you have written a first draft of a screenplay. Just rewrite it until it's crisp and nice. This is what happens though in my mind. I'm now immediately like, this sucks. <laughs> 
It's supposed to suck. It's not supposed to be great. Well, then we did our job. (laughs) I think it's fantastic. Like, you would not go see that movie? Bill Hader is a bad guy? I definitely want to see that. He has been teetering the line in Barry. Solid show. Great performance. He's a born filmmaker. I mean, I'd give him the reins on this to direct it even. There you go. So you have that. I would love to see Zendaya, Lakeef, and Margot Robbie hanging around the neighborhood. Of course, it can't be Lakeith and Margot Robbie. Zendaya's even kind of starting to get a little bit too old to play high school. But that's not what you're thinking as you write it. Gotcha. You're envisioning them. We don't have character names yet. That's second draft. But you're just calling them Zendaya, Lakeith, and Margot or Robbie. I'd probably call her Robbie in the script. Boy name for a girl. How unconventional. All right, so let's recap, yeah? That was 19 minutes. That's all it took, 19 minutes. In 19 minutes, we went from an idea to a pretty writable outline. We started with what two movies were like, right? Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Judgment Night, which is awesome. Like, you have to realize when people say, like, well, Hollywood's not being original anymore. We've seen this already and everything. Hollywood is doing what the market dictates, really. It's because people, they go to see what they know and they love what they know. When you approach Hollywood executives and stuff like that, you have to have something that was popular for people to gravitate towards. So saying like Ferris Bueller's Day Off is is hot, right? Like everybody knows that Judgment Night is a little niche, might not be as popular. So something like that. But in the same instance, you might find that producer that loves Judgment Night. And the fact that you're bringing it up to him, he's going to be all over. We casted it to make it easier to vision, um, and we came up with four essential plot points. The inciting incident, first act break, midpoint, third act break. So the inciting incident is where the plot comes in and really takes off. Margot Robbie wants one last drug fest. Zendaya gets a text, got drugs, meet soon, which is like the inciting incident should happen five to seven minutes or pages into the movie or script. So the first act break is when the plot is solidified. Up until then, somebody could have stopped something. Lakeith could have said no, Zendaya could could get a bad feeling. But at the first act break, roughly 20 to 25 pages in, like we said, they steal the money and the drugs from the dealer. Dealer runs back to Bill Hader. The kids are on the run from the drug guy now. Like they are in the they are in the plot. They are in the movie. There's no getting out. It's usually in, in a hero's journey. The first act break is when um, the hero makes the decision that they're going to go save the girl, go save the kid, or something like that. So the first act break is when the plot is solidified. Like this is it. We're on. We're we're going forward, and uh, this movie is not going to end until this is solved. So the second act is all the fun and games. It's everything that you see in the trailers. It all has to be rising action, um, meaning that everything is making your way toward the third act break. And we said the third act break was Margot Robbie dying, right? Bill Hader, perhaps killing her, perhaps catching them, something like that. So you know exactly where you got to go. And so you just have to make it as interesting as possible to get there. And the first way to do that is the midpoint when everything is going to switch. And we said, you know, it's it starts with Bill Hader blocking them from the school, threatening to tell the principal. Lakeith is like, I cannot get suspended. Zendaya obviously is our hero. She's trying to get Margot Robbie clean. She's trying to get Lakeith to pass whatever. So the kids got to get uh, Bill Hader money. They try to rob their parents. Doesn't work. 
And so they try to rob a convenience store and around 45, 50 pages in, this is the midpoint, this is when they become criminals, right? The police are after them and everything is flipped now where they're not just trying to like get money to free themselves. They now have to evade the law and everything like that. And so in the all is lost moment, they go to Bill Hader with their heads down at the third act break. And this is where something goes wrong and Margot Robbie pays the ultimate price. And Bill Hader pissed off that he killed this girl, pissed off that he's got blood on his hands or whatever, starts chasing our two people. The cops are now chasing our two people. This is the climax. This is when the music is building and everything. And they're running through the backyards, just like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. This is around the 75, 80 page mark, right? Because you got to at least get 90 pages for the script to be considered done. So this all escalates right until they get back into the school. Maybe the cops catch Bill Hader or not, you know, depending on what we want to do here. And they probably cry at their desks as Lakeith gives a very passionate speech about addiction. And then the, you know, insert title card of the movie, A Sobering Day. <laughs> so those are the four big plot points to come up with. And it's help- helpful to have a first image and a last image that mirror each other in mind, just so you know where you are going and where you've been. And that's it. You turned your idea for a movie into a fleshed out outline. Get some software and start writing down what you see and hear on the page. I think you can do it. You're going to be amazing. And remember, it's supposed to be shitty. So you're supposed to be shitty. You're going to be shitty, but amazing at the same time. I believe in you. Don't listen to me because I'm just another screenwriter. <sighs> Easy as that. Told you all we could do it. It, it, Yeah. I think I will leave that up to the audience to decide how easy that was. (laughs) So... Moving on, let's talk about screenplays of 1988. This is where I feel a little bit more comfortable in talking about movies that are already done and going, (laughs) it's so much more difficult to create than it is to critique. (laughs) But creating is a lot more fun. Anyway, we're talking about the best original screenplay of 1988 for movies that came out in 1987. The winner is a man named John Patrick Shanley, and the script that he won for is Moonstruck. The moon brings the woman to the man, capisce? The moon is a little like love. Will you marry me? I will marry you. I will be your wife. You love him, Loretta? No. Good. When you love them, they drive you crazy. Sometimes. Why are you marrying Johnny? He's a fool. It makes you act a little crazy. Where are you taking me? To the bed. Oh, God. Okay, I don't care. I don't care. Take me. Take me to the bed. Isn't it romantic? You got a love bite on your neck. Your life's going down the toilet. You'll have your eyes open for you, my friend. I have my eyes open. I'll say no more. You haven't said anything. You ruined my life. That's impossible. You ruined my life. Look, it's Cosmo's moon. Why do men chase women? Nerves. I don't want to talk about it. That moon, that crazy moon. Now you talk. I love you. What? Snap out of it. I'm confused. They say there's nothing new under the sun. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Under the moon, that's another story. You love him, Loretta? Ma, I love him awful. Oh, God, that's too bad. Cher, Nicolas Cage, 
in a Norman Jewison film. Alla famiglia, eh? Alla famiglia! Moonstruck. Now, Moonstruck is an incredibly popular film, was and still is, but Jesus, I did not like this movie, which is odd because I think I like John Patrick Shanley. Joe versus the Volcano and Doubt are both terrific films. He doesn't have a completely spotless reputation, but my whole life, Moonstruck has hovered over me as this beloved rom-com. It's touching. It's charming. I expected like a New York romance on the level with the apartment. I expected an uproarious 80s comedy that I'd missed out on. I expected to feel conflicted over taking this Oscar away from John Patrick Shanley, but life's full of surprises. Moonstruck isn't cute or sweet. It's grating. And I know it sounds like Lee having another go at a fan favorite, but I gotta be me. Have you ever begrudgingly accepted a homemade confectionery from a co-worker or a doting niece and it was so sugary, you were crunching on granules. That's Moonstruck. It made my teeth hurt. It made me sick to my stomach, and I wanted to stick my fingers down my throat and throw it back up. <laughs> it was interesting that this romantic comedy won for best screenwriting. No? Yeah, it's very but interesting. Like, even the pages that we got to read, we downloaded each of the scripts of the movies that we are talking about. And I think, Lee, you watched them as you were going along with the script. That is correct. And I just read the script. I read about three scripts almost every day. So, like, I'm used to it. Jesus. These, <laughs> well, because I can read and walk at the same time, which I guess is a rare skill. I didn't know it. But, like, I went on vacation recently and was reading on the beach and just walking up and down the beach and ankle deep waves and whatnot, way too many people stopped me and was like, are you reading and walking? <laughs> I was like, I guess if you need a superpower, this could be mine. Can you read and walk? Emails. I'll text while I walk and read the texts that came in. But no, I, I don't take on a extended text while I'm walking. I can't text and walk at the same time. <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm a horrible so texter. You are a horrible texter. <laughs> I don't, I don't like texting. So the read of the screenplay was tough to do. And really, all of your actions should be no more than like four lines at a time. There should be more white on the page than black. This is one of the segments from the script. Interior, the grand casino, nights. White tablecloths and dark green walls, a tiny bar up by the door. The waiters all look a little alike. That's because they're all related. The place is about half full and bustles along pleasantly. Music of violin plays a melancholy Neapolitan air. Mr. Johnny and Loretta sit at a table for two talking quietly. They have their menus and glasses of red wine. Mr. Johnny is Italian, around 42. His wavy salt and pepper hair is impeccably combed back, but there is so much that it threatens to fall forward someday and engulf his face. He's wearing a pinky ring, a dark suit, a gold watch, and an honest face, a mustache, and a look of incredible seriousness. Loretta is Italian, 37. This goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> None of it is important. When you watch the film, it's one shot. Everything on the page should transcribe to like how much time it takes on screen, which is what I love about like James Cameron's writing. However you feel about Avatar and everything like that, James Cameron, when he writes action scenes, he just writes the sound that the bullets are making and everything like that on the page. Because if you say like a gun fires, it takes so much more time to say a gun fires than bam. So he just gets on with it because that's how much time it's going to take on screen. Where this romantic comedy was like drudging on as far as screenplay formatting goes. Yeah, fuck this movie. 
<laughs> and it wasn't even like that great of a like I, when I watched it originally, I watched it one for Cher. Love Cher. I don't know why I love Cher, but I love Cher. And then two, because this is where Nicolas Cage made his mark and his weird acting style is present here. But this movie is not it. I'm glad you agree with me. I was worried you're going to be like, oh, no, this was a horrible win. We're going to take this one away. Yeah. So the other nominees for best original screenplay this year are not that great either, but let's talk about them anyway. Louis Mal for Au Revoir Les Enfants, which for those of you that don't speak French, that means goodbye, children. You took French in high school, right? I did. I had a horrible Spanish pronunciation, so I tried my hand in French. I took French because I thought it was going to be sexier than Spanish. <laughs> and it wasn't. So Au Revoir Les Enfants is based on writer-director Louis Malle's experience at an all-boys Catholic boarding school during World War II. One January morning, somewhere around 1943, Mal watched as the Gestapo took three of his classmates, a teacher, and the school's headmaster away to death camps where they all perished. It's an interesting script because I'm always intrigued to see new perspectives on World War II, to hear stories. You ever wonder how many wartime tales have never been told or have only ever existed as an oral history shared among family members? See, and I'm the exact opposite. I'm like World War II'd out. So now I I, I wonder that. Well, watching Les Enfants, I thought of The Devil's Backbone, another film that we watched this season. I gotta say, in both of these movies, the kids really treat each other like shit. Almost every other scene is some kid getting belittled or derided by the collective. It's like chickens attacking the weak to ascend the pecking order. And though I imagine being an awkward boy living during wartime and having almost no agency whatsoever must make you a bit ornery, it wasn't pleasant to watch. I found the first half of Les Enfant a bit difficult to follow. I was trying to keep up with the subtitles and the script while also differentiating between the countless boys, their names and faces and haircuts. Eventually, I was able to get into Julian's point of view, his resentment, his curiosity, and his complete lack of awareness. I think my favorite part of the script is the point where he asks one of the older kids that he goes off and smokes cigarettes with, what is a Jew and why do we hate them? And it's more than a little chilling to think that Mal actually lived the moment when Julian's ignorance is shattered forever. It's not a bad script, but it's a little too clogged up with boys will be boys antics, which I think was intended to be expository and enjoyable, just tiresome. I like your chickens attacking the weak to ascend the pecking order. Kind of also sounds like crabs pulling each other down in a pot. Mm. (laughs) I thought about school ties just because at first nobody knew who was Jewish in the school. And then it wasn't until the kid was praying at night that the other, the names escaped me. Yeah, because there's like 57 of them. Seven of them. A lot of them are, you know, Jean and Julian and Jean-Paul. Uh, yeah, yeah. But like the kid was praying at night and he was praying pretty loudly. And so the other kid, I was like, perhaps just pray in your head, bro. But I mean, like it was heartbreaking. I started this one on the treadmill because with subtitles, I find it's easier to focus. If it's stuck right in front of me as I'm running. It's the left brain, right brain type thing. And then you don't even realize that you're working, working out. out. Yeah. And I was immediately intrigued by the movie but you're right the schoolyard antics it got long for me like 20 minutes in like i was like let's get to the story it took
took a while for this one to develop, which is sad because I really enjoyed the ending and I never really like how they incorporate titles, but obviously it's called, here's my horrible pronunciation, but Au revoir les enfants is when the headmaster is being taken away by the Nazis. He says goodbye to the children. Spoiler alert. I loved the ending. It really took a long time to get there. So I would say if we're going to critique this, this is a better script than Moonstruck. I think they might all be better scripts than Moonstruck that were nominated. (laughs) Would you disagree? No, I wouldn't. And even then, the pickings are slim. One other part that I did want to mention is where the priest is addressing the students and their parents. He attacked the upper class for burying their heads in the sand during World War II for being apathetic to the plight of poor people and everyone around them. But the priest says this, and this was posted on our social media as well. My message today is especially for the youngest among you. My children, we live in a time of discord and hatred. Lies are all powerful. Those who should guide us betray us instead. More than ever, we must be aware. More than ever, we must beware of selfishness and indifference. Charity is a Christian's first duty. And it's great because the reactions from some of the parents in the parish, they're really put off by the fact that this priest is coming at them. But that and the other part that I mentioned really both struck me very hard. But no, no, not an Oscar winner, not an Oscar winner. Can we move on? Yeah, but I just want to say kudos to the Academy that even back in 1987 when the film was made or 1988 when they're giving out the awards that they were actually looking at international language. I think a lot of the Academy back then was like I am now still sort of enamored of World War II era stories, maybe. Mm -hmm. Well, France is the most nominated and I think the most awarded countries of the international film category. So that tracks. They've always had a special relationship with the Academy. So it's not so surprising. We should just get one of these out of the way. Shall we talk about Woody Kidfucker? (laughs) (laughs) Not funny. Not funny. But there is a nickname in there somewhere. All right. So you want to get Woody Allen for Radio Days out of the way. How many times has Woody Allen been nominated for Best Original Screenplay? It's got to be upwards of 15 times. But we have no wish to A, talk about Woody Allen or award him with any Oscars, no matter how fantastical our awards may be. So there's no need for us to talk about Radio Days. In fact, if anything, Allen should be stripped of the Oscars he already has. But that's a discussion we're planning for another day. Yeah. He's in our sights, dear listeners. We are going to be talking about him in season four. It's weird, though, because his voice is so prominent in the screenplays. It's not like he's like doing anything different. I don't know. Fuck it. I don't want to talk about him. Dude married his daughter. All right. The next one is John Borman's script for his film, Hope and Glory. Sunday, the 3rd of September, 1939. Everyone who is old enough and was there remembers exactly what they were doing at that moment. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. World War II. Folks away! Scramble! Hope and Glory. John Borman's brilliantly observed story of a family at war through the eyes of a child. The next one's the house. Either it hits us or it goes past. Oh, please, God, not on us. Drop it on Mrs. Evans. She's a cow.
learning, that's why they keep moving about. Mummy keeps still and Daddy moves on top of her, that's what they do when they know how. I think you hit him, Grandpa. Hmm? He was limping when he ran off. <laughs> that was a googly. You didn't spot it, Clive. I taught him how. And now he turns it against me. Well done, I'm proud of you. A film about the magic of childhood amid the chaos of war. and glory. And listeners, if you've ever wondered what a Christmas story would be like if it was called A Blitz Tale or even Son of a Blitz, that's what this movie feels like. Hope and Glory is based on writer-director John Borman's strange and interesting life growing up in suburban London during the Blitz. The Blitz, for those of you that are historically challenged, took place between 1940 and 1941 and was Germany's failed attempt to cripple Britain's air force by bombing strategically chosen sites. Eventually, the strategy shifted to targeting civilian areas and Borman's visual memoir chronicles that, especially his family's struggle to stay carefree despite the air raid sirens and the lingering threat of being exploded. It's the little touches here that made this script engaging to me, like young Billy sifting through the rubble piles for shards of shrapnel and treating them like treasure, or his older sister Dawn sneaking back into the family home through her little brother's bedroom window after a night out with the boys. It's the goofy patriarch Clive driving five hours on a motorbike through an English snowstorm so he could be with his family again for 48 hours, only to dismount his bike nearly frozen to death. He's barely able to formulate sentences and he's staggering like Frankenstein towards his petrified son who ends up running inside screaming. This is a script though, I think that benefits from great direction because the script, the copy that we had seemed very updated or modernized with formatting and everything. Then like say like the Moonstruck one that we had that was a horrible copy, obviously typewritten, which all these scripts would have been. But you could tell that the script was a blueprint. And then when they were on set, the director came up with some ideas and some scenarios and the way to play things. And the actors did a very good job finding their characters. So it wasn't necessarily on the page. For example, the scene where Grace and Mac are dropping off their children and then change their mind to bring them back. There's no description of what Sarah Miles, who is playing Grace, actually does on screen other than be in pain. And yet she's ripping at the people holding her back, her face clenched in pain as her eyes are searching wildly for help. It is traumatic on the screen. On the page, it's kind of like, well, she's in pain. That would be like my highest critique. That's a fair criticism. The script is good, but it was the direction and the acting that really brought this one to life for me. I liked this movie. I don't know when or if I'll ever revisit it, but I really appreciated the episodic nature of the plot because the conflict is sort of lingering over their heads, literally and figuratively. And it has a bearing on what they do, but they kind of carry on with their little lives as best they can. And life continues. This is definitely like, I think the prime example of people saw it on the screen and was like, well, that's a great script. And it's like, did you read the script though? Because if you read the script, the script isn't as great as what you're seeing on the screen, because this is a collaborative medium. Actors and directors can save sometimes a screenwriter from themselves. 
That's an excellent point. All right. So the final nomination we have to talk about is the script for Broadcast News, written by James L. Brooks, who's brought us all kinds of movies. Unlike Moonstruck, this movie is sweet and cute. I think it's interesting to see a James L. Brooks film that feels hip, for, for lack of a better word. Maybe I'm just getting really old, but Broadcast News felt very clever. I watched this once in my teens. I couldn't understand the big deal, but now I really liked it. So yeah, I think I'm getting old. Or maybe my tastes are maturing. So with all due respect to the dead, William Hurt kind of always creeped me out regardless of the role he was in. I think it's the cadence of his deliveries. He had his own kind of Chris Walken thing happening, but it somehow felt menacing all the time. Did you ever pick up on that? Yeah. He either played a role that has stuck with me of him being just an unforgivable bastard, or did he have some unforgivable bastardisms in his personal life? I don't know. I don't know much about the man, and I don't want to shit on him. All that said about Hurt, I think he's perfectly cast in the film and does a tremendous job. In fact, everybody in this movie is well cast. Everyone is at their best. I cannot believe Holly Hunter lost Best Actress to Cher. I like Cher too. I find her charismatic, but I just think the role Holly Hunter plays is a better role. And the performance that Holly Hunter gives is just as good, if not better, than what Cher has to work with. I've never seen you like this with anybody, so don't get me wrong when I tell you that Tom, while being a very nice guy, is the devil. This isn't friendship. You're crazy, you know that? What do you think the devil's gonna look like if he's around? God. Come on, no one's gonna be taken in by a guy with a long red pointy tail. Come on, what's he gonna sound like? <sighs> no. I'm semi-serious here. You're serious? He will be attractive. He'll be nice and helpful. He'll get a job where he influences a great God-fearing nation. He'll never do an evil thing. He'll never deliberately hurt a living thing. He'll just bit by little bit lower our standards where they're important. Just a tiny little bit. Just coax along, flash over substance. Just a tiny little bit. And he'll talk about all of us really being salesmen. And he'll get all the great women. Hey, Aaron! I think you're the devil! You know I'm not! friendship where if I were the devil, you'd be the only one I would tell. Well, you were awfully quick to run after Tom's help. When All right, you fine. Want to help? Yes. And if things had gone well for me tonight, then I probably wouldn't be saying any of this. I grant you everything. But give me this. He personifies everything that you've been fighting against. And I'm in love with you. But anyway, more to the point. I can't believe Brooks lost best original screenplay to John Patrick Shanley. Just the relationship between Aaron and Jane, Albert Brooks and Holly Hunter, just that relationship alone must have made it impossible for any other mainstream romantic comedies not to follow suit. It's such a sweet, communicative and honest and vulnerable relationship. It's wonderful. Broadcast news is very clever. The whole story couched in the world of television news reporting really makes the gig look exciting. 
I never had any interest in being a reporter, being a journalist. My wife did. But watching this movie, even though it's 35 years old, kind of made it look fun and even sexy. Brooks develops his characters at a real good clip by giving us rapid dialogue full of news jargon and quick-witted quips and expository, explosive emotional moments. But my favorite thing about this script is Brooks doesn't seem to view any of these three principal characters as villains, despite what goes down. And I think that's why they're all such relatable characters full of life. One of the greatest things about the James L. Brooks nomination for broadcast news is James L. Brooks was a filmmaker and in the television business. So as you're watching broadcast news, while you don't necessarily feel like it, like with an Aaron Sorkin script where he's just like dashing out facts to you in witty commentaries where you feel like you're learning something, broadcast news hides the education. It hides the medicine in the candy. So as you're watching it, you're like, wow, this is how it is. And if you're watching this with the script in front of you, he is writing perfectly what is going on on the screen. Not necessarily beat for beat what is happening on the screen, but he's giving you just enough to know that this is what he's going to deliver when he gets on set. And the scene that I'm thinking about is the chaotic rush to get the edited piece to the producers. I know exactly what you're talking about. And then you have like, yeah. And she has this like weird race in the hall where she's like running into things and whatnot on the page. It's like, well, she jumps over this and she, you know, like, and it's like real brief on the page. And then when you get there, you could tell that they got to set and he was like, run into that water fountain. It's a great juxtaposition of what is on the page versus what is on the screen. And what I love about the script is that everybody is like their worst villain. There's that big fight scene between Jane and Aaron. I think she says, I'm falling for him. And he's got the fridge and he's like, just just get out. Slams the refrigerator door and she walks by him and he's like, no, stay. And it flips around and screams, this is important to me. Yeah. He already has shown you how on the edge everybody is real suddenly at the beginning of the movie when Holly Hunter is just sitting with perfect posture in the bed and she allows herself like 10 seconds to cry and then puts herself back together and goes out. So everybody in this is on the edge. William Hurt shows his vulnerability. It's this moment where Holly Hunter is in bed. Every other movie that you've ever seen, somebody is seducing somebody and both of them in this room are horrible at making a move. And William Hurt is like sitting there being like, I'm horrible at my job. (laughs) I'm not a smart guy. And then Holly Hunter just starts being like a therapist. The movie is unpredictable. It's educational. And I would say this is probably the only one that the Academy got 100% right in its nomination. I have a question for you. What do you make of the opening sequence where all three of our characters are children? And it's sort of Brooks's way of establishing their archetypes. Do you feel that that works? That's kind of like a cheap and easy way to get some expository out of the way. What did you think of that? More so than anything else, it helps with the tone of the movie. It does set up the characters. You see where they're going to go. But in the same instance, there was another movie with Michelle Pfeiffer and Robert Redford that was all about broadcasting in war-torn somewhere that was a lot more serious, where this movie has childish edge to it. If you started off with kids, you're giving everything a lighter touch, which also helps the composer and putting in the music and everything. With it starting off with the kids, I really liked it until we never really revisited it. So at the end, when Aaron's kid is there, 
maybe it's like the save the cat in me with the first image and the last image. I wanted to know what path his son was going to be on based off the fact that I knew what path they were on at the front of the script. Well, you kind of get an idea. His dad's personality already seems to have some influence on him. I do like the opening. I just don't know how I feel about it. I think if you snip it off the front of the movie, I think I still know who these characters are. And I still think I pick up on the tone. Maybe not. It would be interesting to watch the movie with it and without it. I'm so happy that we ended up doing this episode because a lot of the movies that we watch are not movies where it's like, I could rewatch that over and over and over again. Broadcast News is one that I want to rewatch over and over and over again. That is out of the nominateds who should have taken it over Moonstruck. Absolutely. I think the next closest would be Hope and Glory. But as far as I'm concerned, script-wise, Broadcast News is head and shoulders above. But there actually was one other screenplay this year that didn't get nominated, which is kind of surprising. Yes, we made reference to it at the beginning of the episode. And now we're going to talk about it in earnest with our good friend, M. MC, you are an author, you are a podcaster, and you are the sole reason we're talking about movies from 1987. But first off, how you doing? I'm good. Appreciate the guest spot. It's always fun to be here. It's even more fun when I actually know about the movies which you guys are discussing, <laughs> which is the case today. Well, hopefully you checked out our season opener because it was born out of our discussions with you last season, and it's pretty interesting listen. But anyway, the long and short of it is we wanted you to join us for an episode. You said Wall Street. From the director of Platoon, the next battle is in the greatest jungle of them all, Wall Street. We're going down a drain, okay? The stock is plummeting. When it hits 18, buy it all. Something big is going down. I want you to fill out the missing picture. Mr. Gecko, that's not exactly what I do. Where you can trade your honor. I could lose my license. That's inside information. For power. If you're not inside, you are outside. I want you with me, buddy. I'm with you, Gordon. Trade your peace of mind. Just the beginning, pal. If any trouble does arise, you are on your own. The trail does stop with you. For a piece of the action. A hundred million dollars, buddy. All it takes is a little inside information. I don't care where or how you get it. I think you owe me. And you can trade everything you believe in. It's you and your kid, but you're too blind to see it. For everything you've ever wanted. I get a strange call from the SEC. This is heavy, bud. Why do you need to wreck this company? Because it's wreckable, all right? Michael Douglas, Charlie Sheen, Daryl Hannah, Martin Sheen, and Oliver Stone film Wall Street. So, what is it about this movie, specifically Oliver Stone's script, that feels Oscar-worthy to you? Wall Street is a movie dear to my heart for a couple reasons. I saw this movie because of another movie, and Spro can tell you right away what movie that might be, Spro. That would be Boiler Room. Exactly. Our first episode of Second Chance Cinema was dedicated to the movie Boiler Room, which we both saw when we were in college. It's a movie about stockbrokers, and in that movie, there's a scene where they are all watching Wall Street, and it's very reminiscent of the way that myself, Spro, and the other guys were watching Boiler Room. 
at that point, it was kind of like, oh, let's dig into Wall Street a little bit because it seems like it could be a fun time. It's also a movie that my dad loves quite a bit. So quoting it with him goes a long way. When I think about the movie, obviously the hook is money. Greed, the 80s, big cell phones, cocaine, hookers, all those great things. But ultimately what this movie is and possibly why it's so dear to me, I think, is it's a story about uh, a young man, Charlie Sheen's Bud Fox, trying to basically sell himself, to use the terminology of the film, to a father figure and be accepted. And it comes one of two ways. On one hand, he's trying to impress his biological father in both the movie and in real life, Martin Sheen. And he's unable to do that, even though he thinks that he's doing all the things that his father would want of him. He's got a good job. He works on Wall Street. Yet he still comes up short in every conversation. So then he turns his attention to Gordon Gecko, Michael Douglas. And just like a dog bringing his master a bone, he tries to win him over by becoming this unscrupulous Wall Street trader. And what you realize, you know, and of course, I didn't catch this the first couple times I watched it. I was mainly in it for like the quotes and the ties to Boiler Room. But you realize that he can't have it both ways. He can't impress his actual father by becoming Gordon Gecko, And he can't impress Gordon Gecko through the work ethic and the values instilled in him by his regular father. And he's left in this really kind of like tragic limbo that ultimately self-destructs. And the screenplay is just really great at creating these characters, especially Gordon Gecko, in a way that is uh, the word I keep coming back to, especially with Gecko, is seductive. And if you look back at Oscar winners who portrayed villains, the ones I can think of are like Denzel for Alonzo Harris in Training Day, Anthony Hopkins for Hannibal Lecter, even Joaquin Phoenix for Arthur Fleck in Joker, they are all seductive in the way they present themselves, whether it's through the dialogue, the acting, or a combination of both. They don't make you root for them, but they make you like them somehow. And this movie was sort of the first experience like that that I can recall that was largely due to the writing. It's a character that makes you squeamish. But also, like, he's fucking cool. And I think that that's a combination, of course, of the acting, but also some really well-written quips and lines that just sort of bring you into his world and bring you sort of onto his team. What the hell's going on? I'm looking at 200,000 shares, move, pal. I want to for a part of it. We better be, and I'm going to come down and eat your lunch for you. Back to two, Alex. Sorry, Jeff. Look, I love that at 40... Is an insult at 50. They're analysts. They don't know preferred stock from livestock, all right? So you wait till they head south, then we, uh, we raise a sperm count on the deal, okay? Get back at you. This is the kid. Calls me 59 days in a row. Wants to be a player. Ought to be a picture of you in the dictionary on our persistence, kid. Yeah. Now listen, Jerry, I'm looking for negative control, okay? No more than 30, 35%. Just enough to block anybody else's merger plans and find out from the inside if the books are cooked. <clears throat> Looks as good as on paper. We're in the kill zone, pal. We're lock and load. Lunch? Oh, you gotta be kidding. Lunch is for wimps. Okay, Billy, I'll talk at you. How do you do, Mr. Gecko? Bud Fox. So you say, nice to meet you. Hope you're intelligent. Where'd you get these? I got a connection at the airport. So what's on your mind, Kimasabi? Why am I listening to you? I gotta monitor my blood pressure, so whatever you do, don't upset me here. No, no, sir. Within 45 seconds, the microprocessor computes your systolic and diastolic pressure. 
Got an LCD readout, cost-effective, less than one visit to a doctor. <clears throat> I just want to let you know, Mr. Gecko, that I've read all about you at NYU Business, and I think you're an incredible genius. I've always dreamed of one thing, and that's to do business with a man like you. What firm are you with, pal? Jackson Steinem. Uh, going places, good junk bond apartment. You do the financing on that uh, Jansen investment? Yeah, yeah, we're working on some other interesting stuff. Cosmetic company by any chance? What are you, 12th man the deal team has to know? <laughs> I can't tell you that, Mr. Gecko. So what do you got for me, sport? Why are you here? Chart breakout on this one here. Whitewood Young Industries. Explosive earnings, a 30% discount from book, great cash flow, a couple of 5% holders. It's a dog. Very strong management. It's a dog, pal. What else you got besides connections to the airport? Oliver Stone and Michael Douglas have both come out and said that Gordon Gecko is the bad guy. Like nobody should be emulating him. And yet there are so many Wall Street bros like the people that are portrayed in Boiler Room who got into being a stockbroker because of Gordon Gecko. But like you said, is written in such a way that people they get seduced by him. I mean, can you quote any of Ethan Hawke's lines from Training Day or Jodie Foster from Silence of the Lambs. The story is conducive to the existence of the villain. Without Gordon Gecko, Wall Street, the movie doesn't exist. In movies, in TV, sometimes even in sports, the anti-hero, the villain character, wins people over. I'm certainly not surprised that people wanted to become Gordon Gecko. I mean, it was just this completely unique character that's since been emulated unsuccessfully. If I can, I, I can barely even recall like a, a performance of like a corporate raider or stockbroker or anything like that. The only one I can think of for some reason is Patrick Bateman, but that was a completely different story. Jordan Dalton. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. The Wolf of Wall Street. Like, like that was a cartoon. And that was based on a real guy, too, which I would think should have made it either more accessible or more enticing. But like, it wasn't as cool as 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 the gecko vibe. It's just one of those iconic characters that really kind of embodies the whole theme of the movie. I'm willing to admit that I'm probably in the minority here. Um, I do like Oliver Stone. I don't think this is one of his worst movies, but I wouldn't put it in his top three. My reservations with Wall Street aren't necessarily with the script, but with the story, because Buddy's journey feels altogether predictable. He starts out with that doe-eyed charisma, his admirable ambition. He's eventually corrupted, he rises, and he has his inevitable fall. Now, I'm no writer, but it seems to me that telling this story through an innocent everyman kind of makes the world of Wall Street feel more attainable and less abstract. And to me, working as a broker on Wall Street feels about as otherworldly as living in Bhutan. Furthermore, I think this movie suggests that conscience and accountability exist among this sea of scumbags. If you look at Buddy and Sir Larry Wildman, and I don't believe that for a second. And I think that's why I do prefer the story from Wolf of Wall Street. It's not one of my favorite of Scorsese's films, but I prefer the tale it tells for a couple reasons. First and foremost, what you described as cartoonish, I think is perfect. It hews pretty close to the line of his autobiography. It steers the ship right into the rocks of soulless excess, debauchery, and narcissism until you are beyond disgusted. Second, it tells me that through Jordan Belfort's story, people who actively push to be a part of this world are already sick with lust for consumption before they ever put on that and three, and this is probably most important, there's no such thing as accountability on Wall Street. And if somebody does get pinched, nobody gives a flying shit. 
Jordan Belfort is a douche. Gordon Gecko is a villain. I think there's a difference and I think it would have to come down ultimately to the way that the characters are written, regardless of the fact that one is based on a real person. The cartooniness that I was referring to, I think, in The Wolf of Wall Street doesn't add anything to the the stakes of the movie. And it's almost kind of echoed in exactly what you said. Like at the end, nobody gives a shit. Like nobody gives a shit that this guy got arrested when we've spent two plus hours being assaulted by the silliness of his life and his excess. However, like at the end of Wall Street, there's that big confrontation in the park between Gecko and Bud Fox. And it's not viewed by the eyes of the world, but like that's a fucking showdown. Then at the end of the movie, when Fox is being driven up to the courthouse and they have that big, crazy panning shot that comes back after he gets out of the car and he's walking oh, yeah. up the steps, like that feels fucking epic. Like he's going to his doom. So while I might agree that like accountability on Wall Street is fickle at best in terms of what we've seen in the real world, the gravity of the resolution in Wall Street, that was heavy. It's like an Aesop fable. A Wolf of Wall Street is the way it probably really is. Maybe. I mean, there's probably, probably more douches than there are villains. I don't recall <laughs> any talking animals in Wall Street. And if either was going to be a fable, the Wolf of Wall Street would have been a great one. I would imagine that, you know, the marching bands in the office and the monkeys and all that kind of stuff that was done sort of for sizzle, you know, maybe not as common as you'd be led to believe. But yes, there are probably definitely more obscene douches than calculated cold villains, I suppose. I mean, I imagine probably a lot of fat old white guys calling each other Kimosabi. I mean, <laughs> hey, man, maybe Kimosabi. Real quick, Jordan Belfort had a business that failed in 1987 when Wall Street came out. He then founded Stratton Oakmont, which is what Wolf of Wall Street pretty much starts at in 1989. Going back to what I earlier said about Oliver Stone and Michael Douglas having to come out and publicly say Gordon Gecko is a bad guy, stop emulating him and being Wall Street douchebags. How many villains were created because of the script of Wall Street? And then also, if it's creating villains, how many lives were changed because of this screenplay? And that's really what I want to get down to is this screenplay was not nominated for an Academy Award. And the movie that won this year was Moonstruck, starring Nicolas Cage and Cher. Very little changed in the world because of Moonstruck. As far as what Lee was talking about, that Bud Fox's story was pretty predictable. It is very structured, kind of how you would structure a screenplay of the rise and fall of your central character, because it is a tragedy. The script could have been written with the same laws, the same rules of screenwriting today as he wrote it almost 40 years ago, where back in the day, when you were writing a script, you were pretty much on payroll for a studio and you could write whatever you wanted to write, however you wanted to write it, your name was helping people read the script. And so there's a lot of these scripts that have these long paragraphs and long descriptions and a lot of black on the page. And the one thing nowadays that they teach you is that screenwriting is very poetic. It's poetry. There should be more white on the page than black. And Oliver Stone scripts, like their paragraphs aren't more than four to six lines, which is exactly what you're supposed to do nowadays. It's very dialogue heavy, which you're supposed to do nowadays. The script should be a light breeze to read through concerning the fact that the readers are reading three to five scripts a day and you have to break through that. So the way that his script is formed back in 1987 would still pass the reading litmus test today. The other thing that I want to point out 
it's not a great thing that it created villains, but in the same instance, it's still relevant. On page 105 of this 129-page script, this is the Gordon Gecko speech. And he says, the richest 1% of richest this country owns of half this country country. owns half our country's wealth, $5 trillion. One third of that comes from hard work. Two thirds comes from an inheritance, interest on interest accumulating to widows and idiot sons. And what I do, stock and real estate speculation. It's bullshit. You got 90% of the American public out there with little or no net worth. I create nothing. I own. We make the rules, pal. The news, war, peace, spam and upheaval, the price of a paperclip. We pick that rabbit out of the hat while everybody sits out there wondering how the hell we did it. Now, you're not naive enough to think we're living in a democracy, are you, buddy? It's the free market. And you're part of it. Yeah. You got that killer instinct. <laughs> Stick around, pal. I still got a lot to teach you. Obviously. The speeches that Gordon Gecko brings to the table that Oliver Stone wrote on this page, 40 years later, still relevant. I think that's hugely uncommon for a movie as old as, would you say, 40 years ago? Forty About 40 years ago-ish? Before you even said it, I was like, I bet I know which one he's going to read. It was either going to be that one or the Greed is Good speech. But either of them, I mean, they're not irrelevant by any means now. One of the things that you know you you, you keep saying is that Oliver Stone and Michael Douglas had to come out and be like, hey guys, spoiler alert, Gordon Gecko's the villain. Nobody doesn't know that. Everybody knows that Gordon Gecko's the villain. They just don't care. It's justification. It's like a push in the direction that anyone who is interested in becoming like Gordon Gecko wants to go. Nobody doesn't know that Gecko's the villain. They just choose to ignore that fact. I mean, to them, he's just a character in the movie. And a difference too between, you know, what the Gordon Gecko character did in his fictitious universe versus the Jordan Belfort character in his real universe. I hate to say that one was legal and one wasn't, but that's kind of the case that Wall Street develops. I mean, Gordon Gecko's big thing was insider trading, which was certainly a different beast back in the 1980s, you know, without the ability to collect text messages and social media and things like that. I mean, it was basically kind of like, let's meet in the bathroom and take a piss and we'll tell each other what we know real quick and nobody's listening, nobody's the wiser. So not legal, but also kind of hard to police. Whereas the Ponzi scheme bullshit that Jordan Belfort did, like that's a dime a dozen. I mean, you have multi-level marketing moms on Facebook falling prey to that all the fucking time. Like I get the, the scope to which he did it. The millions and millions and millions of dollars warranted some sort of exploration. But again, I feel like the commonality of it kind of diluted the way it came across like a cartoon sort of. Isn't it gross how like how drawn we are to these stories about people that, you know, create victims for money? I remember seeing the trailer for The Wolf of Wall Street and they had the Kanye West Jay-Z song on it. And I was like, oh, fucking bad ass. I was so psyched for the movie. And then I'm watching the movie. I was like, oh, no. I find Charlie Sheen's character cloying and needy. And I find Gordon Gecko's character. I mean, I, I recognize they do a good job of demonstrating his power and his influence over everyone else. Except for Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen is the only person in that movie who 
within a minute, sees through the bullshit, stands up and walks out. That scene is brilliant. For anyone who hasn't seen it, Bud Fox is about to be made president of the airline that his dad works for, which is about to be bought by Gordon Gecko. And in order to do that, Gordon Gecko has to have the concession of all the union reps. So he's got them all at Bud Fox's ridiculously art deco department. They go through their spiel. It's basically a pitch meeting. And there are three other union reps and they're all like, yeah, we like the sound of this. We like the cut of this guy's jib. Seems like a real straight shooter. <laughs> and then Martin Sheen is like, he laughs, he crumples up the proposal and he, he says, I came to Egypt a man who did not know. And he talks about how that's a prophecy that the rich have been exploiting the poor forever. Basically like calls Gordon Gecko's bullshit. I came into Egypt a pharaoh who did not know. I beg your pardon, is that a proverb? No, a prophecy. The rich have been doing it to the poor since the beginning of time. The only difference between the pyramids and the Empire State Building is the Egyptians didn't allow unions. I know what this guy's all about. Greed. He don't give a damn about Blue Star or the unions. He's in and out for the buck and he don't take prisoners. Now wait just a minute, Dad. Sure. Now what's worth doing is worth doing for money. It's a bad bargain and nobody gains. And if we do this deal, everybody gains. Of course, my son did work as a baggage handler and freight loader for three summers. With those qualifications, why should we doubt his ability to run an airline? Fine, you don't want to stay with a scum and present management dedicated to running you and your airline into the ground. That scum built the company up with one plane in 30 years and made something out of nothing. If that's a scum, I'll take it over a rat any day. He is the moral compass of the movie, and he's in it for all of 10 minutes, maybe, total. Roughly. And there's a part I love in that scene. Gecko goes to put down, I think, like a plate of hors d'oeuvres or an ashtray or something onto a table, and like there's no surface to it. It looks like it could be <laughs> clear glass, but there's no surface to it. And he puts the thing down, and, and it falls right through. And right there, that's the first time in the entire movie that Gecko has misstepped in some way. And it's in the presence mm. of the Martin Sheen character. He drops the ball in front of the Martin Sheen character, and then that's where his mystique becomes unraveled. And that's all in the writing. Yeah. Am I wrong, Spro? Is that is that all in the writing? Well, you don't need yeah. Spro to agree. I'll agree with you on that. Oh, that's, right. an excellent, that's an excellent pickup. The dichotomy between the Martin Sheen character and the Gordon Gecko character. I don't know why I'm calling the Martin Sheen character. I should call him the Carl Fox character. <laughs> Martin Sheen's a real guy. But uh, the contrast between the two is is so rough and like abrupt in that scene that it's the first time you as the viewer are like, now hang on a second. There's some holes in Gordon Gecko's argument. He's been slick and he's pulled the wool over my eyes this whole movie, but here comes Carl Fox swinging and ready to go. And he's right. He turns out to be exactly right. He says to Bud Fox, he's got your prick in his back pocket, which is 100% right. He doesn't believe anything that Gecko's saying. It's a great example of, I suppose you'd call him a supporting character, being written with no wasted space. Well, and it's interesting like to rewatch it now because when he says the line, there came into Egypt a pharaoh who did not know, he's like looking off. And it's like, it's so President Bartlett from the West Wing that you're like, you could almost see the casting being made oh, like 15 his, years uh, Okay, that was his character, right? Yeah. And like he just, becomes the president. And then he has those speeches where Gecko says like, I beg your pardon. I got the script open in front of me. Oh. I beg your pardon. Is that a proverb? No, it's a prophecy. A prophecy. The rich yep. have been doing it to the poor since the beginning of time. And then he goes down on that spiel. It's like, if you love the West Wing and you love Martin Sheen's character in it, like go visit this movie again where he plays Carl Fox. It's prime Martin Sheen. 
I think about the interactions that Gordon Gecko has throughout the movie, like leading up to this moment. He interacts with Sir Larry Wildman, who's sort of like his contemporary and comes out on top. He interacts with Bud Fox several times, who's his like protege, still kind of in the same world and teaches him a lesson every time, you know, and then there are other like lawyers and secretaries and stuff like that, that he has interactions with the Daryl Hannah character, who I don't need to talk about. <laughs> I don't know why my, my brain just focused on that scene where she's wearing that hat that looks like a, I don't know, it looks like a popcorn tub turned upside down with like mosquito netting coming down in the front of it with these little like graduation tassels. It just makes me angry every time. My point being, all the interactions that Gecko has up until that moment, he comes out on top and it's Carl Fox, the blue collar worker with ethics and morals and values who calls it like it is. I don't know much about writing a screenplay, but I know that momentum is a part of it. And leading up to that moment, even if it's very subtle, casting Gordon Gecko in this unfallible light makes that interaction much more impactful. I did want to ask you guys a question really quickly on topic, off topic, but I'm curious, how do you guys handle salesmen? <laughs> Hang up. <laughs> Hang up is number one. Don't, I should say don't answer is number one. Hang up is number two. And if it's the poor, poor, poor kids who are in like the middle of the grocery store trying to sell me a ring doorbell, walk by respectfully and say, no, thanks, not interested. You don't have to be mean to these people, but like Boiler Room takes place in a center where they're making cold calls. And the first part of Wall Street, the scene where he's with John C. McGinley, that's what they're doing. I always imagine my dad, like if someone were to call my dad up and say, hey, this is from Boiler Room. We've got this great new retractable needle that's going to change the medical industry. He would hang up the phone so fucking fast that like the receiver would give off sparks. And I think I saw that so many times growing up, like just, yeah, don't have time, don't have time. Sorry, not interested. Sorry, not interested. That it's become a reflex, I think. And other salesmen, the ones that you kind of have to deal with, I don't know, like if you're buying a car or if you're talking about like a bill for internet or cable or something like that, I have to say that the one thing that has gotten me into a much, much better headspace dealing with those people, because it used to be a source of great like social anxiety for me. Like I would go in kind of, okay, I'm ready to do this, but then sort of crumble has been selling things on either Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. And the reason is because those are such low stakes transactions that they've become like practice on kind of how to be more of a dickhead. I remember I had a guy who wanted to buy an old iPad from me and he pulls up in his van. The first thing he says is like, yeah, come with a charger. And I was like, no, it doesn't. I said that in the ad guy. And he said, all right, let me check it out. And I said, all right, I want to see the money before you take this piece of expensive technology out of my hands. And he's like, no, 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 I don't like that. I don't like that. And we kind of went back and forth for maybe two more turns. And then I just gave him the finger, got in my car and drove away. I was like, I don't need to fucking deal with this. Somebody's going to buy this. I don't need your bullshit. And doing stuff like that over the course of however long has really gotten me to a point where like I can kind of talk to salesmen and be a little more imposing. The thing that I try to do to get myself in the space with salesmen, and this is a very specific thing, in the dark night when Gary Oldman sits down to interrogate the Joker, he does this thing where he sweeps his arm across the table and just kind of like takes a deep breath and sort of like gets in his space. And I find myself doing that a lot before I have to answer a question or, you know, lead into a conversation that I don't know where it's going to go. I kind of just like do that little swipe, take a deep breath, and then I'm ready to talk to salesmen. I did not think I would be talking about that technique this early in the morning to both of you on a podcast. (laughs) 
but here we are. I was a salesman for three years for the family business, which was the manufacturing of paper potato bags. So I had to go out. My territory was Long Island, New York, Delaware, around the East Coast. My mentor, we had completely different styles. His style was the, come on, man, I have kids to feed sales technique but he was the best salesman. And so my whole thing was social anxiety. I own a business now that probably could do a whole lot better if I knew how to sell anything. I'm more of a manager of sorts. I can take care of customers once they're in the door. Sometimes I feel like I'm bothering my friends if I reach out to them. Like they're probably busy doing something, you know, like, so I don't call people much because I don't want to interrupt their day. That's what cold calling is. And I cannot do that. So there was one time that I was talking to Danny and being like, man, you're a salesman. I am not. And he's like, no, 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 man. I love your way. You're kind of like, here's the product. Take it or leave it. And I was like, that's that's about as much as I can do. (laughs) I'm selling this. And then the farmers would be like, you got Gentleman Jack on you? And it's like, (laughs) I do. If I give you a bottle of Gentleman Jack, will you buy my paper potato bags? And they'd be like, yeah, put me down for 20 grand. I could do that, you know? So I would put that note down, you know, send them a bottle and they will buy enough to make my salary for my father worth it. So (laughs) that's the other side of things, I guess. I think the reason I, I don't relate to the Bud Fox character and I'm not suckered by the Gordon Gecko character is because whenever I'm in a situation where I know that they're dangling a hook and they want me to bite, I become as cold and indifferent as I possibly can. And I love to say no thanks and just nothing else. If you adopt that, you can get salespeople to lash out. And then at that point, you know that the fisherman's up on the dock cussing and snapping his his rod over his knee. I love the desperation of salesmen and I love turning it back on them and then never saying yes and giving them <laughs> none of my money. That's some sociopathic shit, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anybody that works off of a commission, they knew what they were getting into. That characteristic that salesmen have, the the selling technique, the art of the sale and stuff like that. You know, like I, I don't give two shits really about money, but there's definitely a money addiction when it comes to capitalism and everything like that. I don't give two shits about money either, but I'm not giving it away. Well, that to somebody with white teeth and uh, a nice part. I have a self-esteem thing or something like that where like, I don't want to interrupt somebody. I don't want to affect another person where these salespeople, they don't have that quality to them and they can impose upon other people for their own benefit. And that's what gets people power and money in this country. So like, that's what like Gordon Gecko doesn't give a shit about you. He just cares about the sale and that creates villains and creates these Wall Street and these politicians with the insider trading. I love that there's bipartisan support to try and get insider trading out of Congress and the Senate right now. But in one way, I don't give a shit about money. And another way I go, man, I wish I had a little bit more of that quality because I probably would get along with my days a little bit better if I wasn't so, I don't know, for lack of a better word, mousy in, you know, even grocery store aisles where I would try to get everybody. I'm telling you, man, sell, sell shit on Craigslist or buy shit on Craigslist. You hotwire these mini micro relationships that exist for the span 
span of like a few text messages and a meetup. And they are relationships. Like they are genuine relationships that exist for a very, very short amount of time. They are relationships with stakes, whether or not it be like you selling something, trying to bring in a little extra cash, or you getting something like, I don't know, in my case, an old action figure that I thought was gone forever, something silly like that. But these are people that you never ever have to see again for the rest of your lives. And that's not to say that's a license to be dick to them. It's just to say that you can format the conversation in your head knowing that. And I know that that it's different when it's a complete stranger. When it's a complete stranger, there are so many possibilities. When you're talking about somebody at the grocery store, that is a complete stranger. But when it's a stranger who you've already sort of nipped and tucked this little bit of interaction with, it pulls the claws in and it makes it a little bit safer for you to kind of go in and have an opinion, have a theory as to this person's motivation, all that kind of stuff. I'm not like a Craigslist entrepreneur or anything like that. But when I started thinking about how I got better acclimated to talking and interacting in social situations, I kind of pinpointed it back to like, oh, you know, dealing with this kind of shit hasn't hurt. And that said, it's helped in a way. So it's worth a shot. Just be careful when you go to the Sears parking lot, you might meet some douchebag in a van. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Well, getting back to it, the five that were nominated this year was Moonstruck by John Patrick Chanley, Au Revoir, Les Enfants, Louis Mao, Broadcast News by James L. Brooks, Hope and Glory by John Borman, Radio Days by Woody Allen. What of those could we eliminate for Wall Street? Woody Allen's a creep, so fuck that guy. But also, Au Revoir, Les Enfants, we watched in French class in like eighth grade, and that was stupid. The weird thing is, when it comes to these five scripts and what to eliminate and Wall Street and everything like that, really... This is a two-way race this year for me, and it goes down to broadcast news and Wall Street. Those are the only two that are still relevant today. Those are the only two that were written, as far as like a read goes, were super easy to read. And my vote would be, obviously, with Wall Street. Just a piece of trivia that I want to throw out. Michael Douglas was filming two movies at the same time. Wall Street, Fatal Attraction. Fatal Attraction, nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. So that dude, with his delivery of lines, was just making scripts pop. I really like Michael Douglas as an actor. Oh, he's great. Falling down, for sure. What's adapted screenplay? Is that like from a book? Yeah, from any other source material. So you could do it from a book, from a play, from a newspaper Uh, article, magazine, or you can do best adapted screenplay as like a remake. Did not know that. Thank you very much for the recommendation, MC. It was it was an education to not only revisit Wall Street, but to revisit so many of these very forgettable 1987 films. And it's also just still mind-blowing to me that John Patrick Shanley won for Moonstruck. I am more than happy to take that Oscar away from him. And since we live in a democracy, and the two of you have presented some very persuasive arguments as to why Wall Street not only deserved a nomination, but the win, we hereby transfer the Oscar from John Patrick Shanley over to Oliver Stone and Stanley Weiser for their script, 
of Wall Street. Thank you, MC. My pleasure. Hopefully, uh, we can get you back on for uh, another episode that we have coming up later in the season, dealing with one of the less appreciated genres, but we'll talk about that later. So, what did we do this episode? Man. What didn't we do this episode? (laughs) (laughs) We talked about what screenwriting is. We fleshed out and wrote an outline for a screenplay called Sober, starring Zendaya, Lakeith Stanfield, Margot Robbie, and Bill Hader, which would obviously kill as a movie nowadays. We talked about the nominated screenplays of 1988. We had a special guest MC to talk about Wall Street. We ended up giving Moonstruck's stupid, stupid Oscar over to the still resonating Wall Street screenplay of today. This has been an episode for the ages, my friend. Agreed. But I still do want to say that my minority opinion remains broadcast news. It's like we always say here on Salt Dota. It's not what you want, it's what you can stomach. Well, MC makes a lot of really good points. Points that I didn't consider. And points, quite frankly, he even said it himself. For somebody that has seen a film this many times, you're just going to spot stuff that somebody else who's only seen it twice may not. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Season three keeps going, though, so we'll see you in two weeks. But until then, I'm Lee. I'm Spro. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. For my theme song, my leather black jeans on, my by any means on, part and I'm getting my scream on, into the kingdom, but watch it you bring home, you see a black man with a white woman at the top floor, they gon' come to kill King Kong, middle America packed in, can't see me in my black skin, number one question they asking, can, uh, can we not do another screenplay episode for a while? So much reading. Mm, don't you have a master's in English literature? Oh yeah. Graduated with a 4.0, baby. All right. Well, don't brag, number one. Number two, you went to school specifically to read literature, and you're bitching about some screenplays? I know. I know. But, you know, I'm changeable. Well, you kind of sound like an asshole there, Totally. Buddy. Totally. Totally. So when are we back? Uh, Monday, October 10th, and we're bringing our mutual friend, probably voracious reader because he's a published author, Mr. Joe Lewis. Aw, I love Joey. He's a lot of fun. What are we going to be talking about? He has requested a discussion on the films of 2001 and the Oscar for Best Director 2002. Oh, I know exactly where we're going with that one. But 2001 was a great year for cinema, so lots to talk about on that one. Absolutely. I'm excited. As always, loyal listeners, you can help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We're still collecting, still collecting reviews. We'd like to see some more. Make your very honest review, hopefully very positive. Yeah, maybe just positive. If you're an Insta kid, you can follow at Take on the Academy for updates, lots of cinema posts and cool stuff. Or if you still like to email, you can send those to takeontheacademy at gmail.com. Thanks again, everyone. And you'll hear us again October 10th. Wait a minute. Did you call me an asshole? Yeah. Niggas ain't doing shit. Them niggas ain't doing shit. Come on, homie. What happened? You niggas ain't breathing. You gasping. These niggas ain't ready for action. Ready, ready for action. Action. And I'm zoning, I think I'm possessed It's an omen, I keep it 300 Like the Romans, 300 bitches Where the Trojans, baby, we living